The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. This morning, we'll be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said... Father God, we are in and of ourselves incapable of doing what needs to happen next. It can only be by the working of your spirit that we can rightly handle and hear, understand and respond to your word. So Father, I ask for myself in these moments to come that, Father, you would um, you would sharpen my mind, that you would keep out any distractions, that you would guard my lips from any words that do not honor you. I pray for these people, that you would likewise guard their hearts, that you would open their ears, and that together, Father, we would walk out of this place changed because we have not merely read some words on a page, we have not merely read some, sung some songs. We have, not, we have not just heard the teachings of a man, but because we have encountered you, the living God. Father, we trust that you will do this, for it is to your glory. Because we pray in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, an, an observant reader of the Gospels is very likely to come to the impression that what we have here are actually passion narratives with very long introductions. 
That is to say that everything that God reveals to us and everything leading up to this point, the first 20 chapters of Matthew's gospel, the first 10 chapters of Mark, 18 of Luke, 11 of John, that everything that we have been reading has been building towards this final week of Jesus' earthly life. Of course, I do not mean to say that there's no other value in all that we've been given here. There's great purpose in that. As you know, all that God has recorded for us through these gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is meant to show us, meant to give evidence to us as to the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ. Unless we come to see who Jesus of Nazareth really is, unless we come to sit, as it were, under his teaching, we have no hope of rightly understanding the beauty and the power of Passion Week. But if you consider the fact that a full third of the gospel records are devoted to this, just seven days out of Jesus' 30-year earthly life, of his three-year earthly ministry, you cannot help but think that what we are witnessing here truly is the most critical moment of the most critical moment in the history of the world. And even then within that week, this day, even within that day, this hour, in what the ESV titles, the death of Jesus. Beloved, where we come today, where we stand this morning, this is truly sacred ground. So it is my prayer that everything we have studied together over these last 25 months, this is our 101st sermon out of the book of Mark. So I pray that everything we have studied over the last 100 sermons has prepared our hearts for this moment. I pray that I have not done anything to oversimplify what it is that we witness here. I pray that I have not done anything to give you the impression that what we read this morning is going to be easy to understand. I pray that while God gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand and believe what we read and what we seek to study this morning, I pray that you have not ever for one moment lost your sense of awe and wonder. I pray that as you hear these words, as I do my best to get out of the way and to present them to you, as we look upon these final hours of the life of Jesus Christ as he suffers for you, I pray that you come to it with unshakable faith and childlike amazement. I would also ask that you pray for me. I feel neither prepared nor equipped to deliver this message. And so it is my hope this morning that I will stick to the well-worn paths. I'm going to labor greatly to avoid doing anything that might allow my clumsy feet to trample this precious word. So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Mark's gospel. We're still in the 15th chapter. We'll be reading beginning in verse 33. This is the word of God. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when a centurion 
who stood facing him saw the way, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. All God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me myself? Would you show me yourself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So you'll recall that Jesus was taken outside of the gates of Jerusalem, and there he would be crucified. The place was called Golgotha. This means the place of the skull. Now, I have to imagine this is a little bit like when people put a skull and crossbones on a bottle that has something poisonous in it. It's not that there was a bunch of skulls laying around at the foot of this hill, and it doesn't seem that the hill itself was formed into the shape of a skull, although that's what some men believe. I think that this was simply an acknowledgement of how many men had lost their life in this place. This was a place well known to the people of Judea. as a place where the Romans would execute their criminals. So it was nine in the morning when Jesus was nailed by his hands and feet, to the cross. A sign bearing the charge was hung over his head. You remember that it read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The cross was then hoisted up and laid into place. Now, if nothing else, I pray that there are two realities that have become crystal clear as we've continued to work through this narrative. If we've read all of Mark's words with regards to the trial, the arrest, the trial, the beating, and the execution, the punishment of Jesus. Firstly, I pray that you see that even as Jesus is bound up and in custody, even as Jesus is handed over and he is led away by the hands of these sinful men, I pray that you've come to recognize that Jesus is in absolute control of every single part of this drama. Pilate, Herod, the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, these all, all these men did exactly as their heart saw fit. They owned this sin. They will answer for this sin in all eternity. And yet every single piece of this is happening exactly as God has ordained, exactly as Jesus has predicted. How many weeks have I said that to you now? God is not lost. Satan has not won. So as we walk through Passion Week, I pray that that reality has become crystal clear, that God is still in control. Secondly, and in close connection with this, in close connection with the absolute providential control of God over all of this, I pray that you've taken note of Jesus' absolute unflappable composure and grace. In the words of Isaiah, he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't utter a defense. In the face of blasphemy and scorn, mockery, even beating, Jesus only opened his mouth whenever it was necessary to affirm his identity that he was the Christ. But he would present no defense. He would offer no argument. He would not plead his case. He would not beg for his life. From that point in the garden where Jesus was strengthened by the angel of God, from that moment when he stood up in confidence that I will march forward to this cross and that through this cross I will truly be exalted, he set his face like flint and he would not be deterred. We do not find in him even the slightest sense of a stutter step. Even a slice pulling back from that moment when he rised up in the Garden of Gethsemane and started headed towards Golgotha. Even once Jesus arrived there at the place of the skull, even as the suffering began in earnest physically, as his hands and feet were nailed, as the piercing pain ran all through his body, as it flooded his mind, we find that that which was in Jesus' heart all along, it comes flooding out of his mouth. And it was nothing but love and mercy and grace. Father, forgive them. 
For they know not what they do. Isn't that what he said? Jesus sincerely desired for God to forgive these men who cursed him. Jesus sincerely desired that these men would turn to God and be saved. That these very men who hated him, who mocked him, who beat him, that by the blood that they now spilled, these men would be cleansed and forgiven. He prayed that they would come to recognize their sin, that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would believe in him, and that as they cried out for mercy, God would receive that cry. He would respond to them in forgiveness. Now, having heard this cry, we know that there was two criminals, one at the right and one at the left. Mark calls them robbers, but we know this was more than a pickpocket. These were violent insurrectionists. And both of these men, too, were cursing Jesus. They were blaspheming the Lord. And yet one of them, having heard Jesus cry, he thought to himself, could that same forgiveness be extended to me? And so he turns to Jesus and he cries out for mercy. You see, this man, he, he knew that he was sinful. He knew that his condemnation was just. At the same time, he knew that Jesus was righteous. He knew that if Jesus was dying, it was for the sins of someone else. These were not his own. The robber also knew that Jesus was a king. And he knew that this kingdom awaited him on the other side of the grave. And so hoping that this very same forgiveness might be extended to him, hearing the compassion and the love and the mercy in Jesus' voice, even in the face of those that hated him, this man who had come to this point, he had been stripped of everything that this world has to offer. At the very doorstep of death, the great enemy of man, the robber says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man had done nothing during access into the kingdom of God. Just moments earlier, he was blaspheming the king. And yet Jesus turns to this man and says, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' general prayer for forgiveness led to the immediate salvation of this sinful man. In the days to come, there will be thousands more who follow. Dear friends, as I prayed before last week's service, and I have prayed all this week, I pray that perhaps some of you have come to see what this villain saw. That some of you saw in the face of Jesus Christ true offer of forgiveness, mercy and grace that will be extended to any who will turn and repent, any who will cry out, any who will stop railing against heaven about all the suffering that they endure. This man was cursing Jesus. If you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us? I pray that you've come to see through that pain, that you too have come to the point where you see Jesus as your ultimate treasure, your only hope. As a result of what you've seen, you've cried out and been saved. Now, there was one more encounter that we skipped last week. I told you we would come back to it, and it serves to further highlight, I think, just the incomparable grace and mercy and love that Jesus has, even in this, the very zenith of his suffering. It's a very brief but beautiful exchange. John records it for us. John 19, beginning in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, as you know, this is John. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, we don't have time for a full exposition of this text, but I do pray that you see the tenderness and love, the compassion that Jesus has for his mother at this hour. Most everyone seems to agree that Mary was a widow by this point, that Joseph has died some point earlier. Now her oldest son is about to die as well. Now based on previous interactions that Jesus had with his biological family, we might be tempted to believe that he doesn't care for them at all. You remember that he was teaching in a house when his family came down from Nazareth. 
They were going to talk some sense into Jesus and drag him home. And yet his word reached Jesus where he was sitting inside the house and teaching. Your mother are here. Your brothers are here. Jesus responded by saying, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This wasn't that Jesus didn't care for his family. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Surely we're to love those that are closest to us. And obviously we're to care for those that are entrusted to us, those that live under our own roof. But Jesus was teaching that true discipleship, to be truly united to him into eternity, is to sit at his feet and to hear what he says. It's to do what he commands. Now Mary, of course, knew who Jesus was. She heard the word from the angel. The purpose here wasn't that Jesus didn't love his mother. The purpose was him looking at this woman that was more than a disciple. He looked into the face of his precious mother and he knew what awaited her. You see, his brothers were not followers of Christ at this point. His, brother has thought perhaps that he was, his brothers thought perhaps he was crazy at this point. And so looking to one of his spiritual brothers, looking to the apostle John, he said, John, behold your mother. He wanted to make sure that his mother was cared for. John, mother, behold your son. John, behold your mother. From that point forward, he took her as his own and cared for her. I pray that you see Jesus' love, his tenderness, his compassion. I pray that you see that never has there been a man that endured greater suffering, and yet never has there been a man that thought less of his own pain and more about the, the care of others. Never did a man think less about his own comfort and bring an end to his own suffering and more about caring for those, even those that cursed him. Jesus pouring out grace upon grace on everyone around him, even those who least deserved it. And in return, he's met with nothing but mockery and shame. You remember the people that passed by. They were wagging their heads and they were saying, you say that you will destroy the temple and rebuild it in just three days. Come down from that cross and save yourself. The religious leaders, they said to each other, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. The guards, they continue to mock Jesus as well. In the face of his unimaginable love and mercy and grace, there was nothing but hatred and vitriol. It only intensified. His sincere offers of forgiveness, they were met with nothing but scorn and self-righteous contempt. Then we come to this morning's text, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. As we have said, Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour. Now it is the sixth hour. That makes it 12 noon. Jesus had already been hanging upon this cross for three hours. Surely every single minute felt like days. And then there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is recorded for us in all three of the synoptic gospels. This darkness, this three hours of darkness over the whole land. Gi is the word in Greek. It can also be translated as the whole earth. Now half the earth, it was already in darkness. That's the way nighttime works. Whenever it was noon in Jerusalem, it was four in the morning in Crosby, Texas, or two o'clock in the morning on the, on the west coast. So the question is, was this darkness over the entire eastern hemisphere? Was this darkness over the entire Roman Empire? Was this darkness over all of Israel? Was this darkness just over all of Judea? We aren't told. But I think perhaps we get some insight based on the words of Luke. Luke says in Luke 23, 45, that the sun, its light failed. Based on this, it seems to me as though the sun went completely dark, that there was no portion of sunlight reaching any portion of the earth. This would also mean that the moon went dark. The moon is just a reflector. It doesn't have any light of its own. This would also mean that the moon went dark. So at this moment, the whole earth went black. Now, typically, whenever we read about the sun failing to give its light, we read about darkness overcoming some portion of the, of the world, we immediately think about a solar eclipse. That's the most rational answer for what happened here. 
we are not we're not confused by the fact that God often uses ordinary means and secondary causes and the laws of nature to bring about his good purpose and God certainly could have used a solar eclipse in this instance but here's the problem an eclipse occurs whenever the moon comes between the sun and the earth it's the shadow yeah it's a shadow from the moon on some portion of the earth go back to second grade science you know this right whenever the orbit lines up perfectly and the moon is in the proper position it blocks out the sunlight from reaching the earth. Are you with me? Here's the problem. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. And each month begins when the moon is, in fact, on the same side of the earth as the sun. That's what we call a new moon. This is the beginning of each Jewish month. So at the first of Nisan, the first of this month, the moon was in the proper position where there could have, if the orbit had been just right, there could have been a solar eclipse. But we know that Passover occurs on the 15th day of Nisan. This means that the moon has completed half of its orbit around the earth. This means it's on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. There was a full moon. There was a full moon during the Passover. These are the circumstances that bring that about. So everything was aligned perfectly for there to be the opposite of a solar eclipse at this moment. In addition to that, we know that a solar eclipse lasts something like seven and a half minutes. And yet we're told by the gospel writers that this darkness fell over the whole earth for three hours. Now you could argue that what God did was he altered the moon's orbit. God altered the moon's orbit and he made it possible that there could be both a full moon and a solar eclipse on the same day. And you could also say, well, what God also did was he just stopped the rotation of the earth to make certain that that darkness remained on the earth for 24 times longer than a normal eclipse. God certainly could have done that. We know that God did, in fact, cause the earth to stand still, cause the sun to stay still in the sky so that Joshua and the Israelites could overcome the Amorites in battle. So that's what God wanted to do. It wouldn't be beyond him, and we wouldn't be the least bit shocked if God did exactly this at this, the most pivotal moment in redemptive history. But I think that it's something else. I think that it's something way less explainable, and yet perhaps even more simple. I think God simply turned the lights off. In some other supernatural, completely unexplainable way, God simply made the whole earth go dark. You remember that it's by the word of God that light exists. Let there be light. It's by that same light that he brought the sun and moon into being. God made two great lights, the greater to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. It's no leap to imagine that God could simply make the whole earth go pitch black without any warning or any explanation whatsoever. But why? That's the important thing, not the how. Do you ever notice that? God gives us very little insight into much of the how. But oftentimes it's the why. And yet we're always intrigued by the how. That's what men sit around at a bar and argue about. It's like arguing about who is the greatest baseball player. People love this, by the way, because everyone gets an opinion. The dumbest man in the room still gets an opinion because there is no absolute answer. But what about the why? Why has God done this? This is what matters. Why did God cause it to go dark? over the whole land, or over, even if it was just Israel, until three o'clock, until from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday. Now, I'm sure that you know, many of you know, that themes of light and darkness, they run all throughout Scripture. Think back again to the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Darkness and disorder. This was the state of the earth until God spoke. Until he spoke and then immediately order came from chaos. 
Immediately light overwhelmed the darkness. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we see God continually revealing himself. And every time he does, he's surrounded by this effulgent light of his glory, the brilliance of the Shekinah that led the Israelite people through the wilderness. You think about the way in which God revealed himself to Moses, so much so that as Moses would come down off the mountain having met with God, he would see this glow upon his face. Think about the radiant light that surrounded the vision of the Lord that was given to the prophet Ezekiel as he sat by the Chabar River in Babylon. Over and over and over again, the presence of God is made most known by a radiant light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He lightens my darkness, and by his light do we see. That was the song of the Jewish people. God is our light. And then when we see with the coming of Christ, of course, it should be no surprise that we hear more talk about the light. John began his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ is the light shining into the darkness of the world, the darkness of this world that is under the power of the enemy, the darkness of sin and evil and unbelief and judgment and death. We see this even more clearly in John's gospel, John 3, 19, that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their ways were evil. Darkness represents everything that is opposed to God, and light represents God and his glory and his goodness and his purpose and his power and his order and his presence. We see this, of course, most clearly in Jesus Christ, the one who calls himself the light of the world. In a very real way, Jesus comes to illuminate the world, to show them the fullness of who God is, but in a very special way for his people. As he illuminates our hearts, as he opens our eyes, as he brings us to an awareness of our sin, as he, as he eliminates the shadows in those corners of our heart, as he shows us his face, he reveals to us the beauty and the hope, the treasure that is to be found in him. We're reading John 12, 46. I continue in John's gospel. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That to be with Jesus Christ is to be out of the darkness and to be in the light. Even greater than this, he goes on to say that we ourselves can become children of the light. He says in John 12, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you still have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light, that you yourself can become sons of light. Isn't that what we came to celebrate on Christmas Eve? We take the light of Jesus Christ and we go out into this dark world. He not only illuminates our heart, he not only opens our eyes, but he tells us to take that light and to go out into the dark world and to represent him, to be used of God by the power of his word, by the working of his spirit, to help other people to see rightly, to call them out of the darkness that they've become so accustomed to being in. I think you're getting the picture here. Light represents God and his goodness and his order and his purpose and his power and his wisdom. The very glory of God, the thing that we most desperately long to see while darkness represents sin and unbelief. This world was made for the light of God and sin and Satan and all things that are contrary to God. They love the darkness. They shriek in the presence of the light. You see, sin wants to remain hidden. Satan wants to stay undercover. They don't like the illuminating presence of God. They don't like to be exposed like this. And so those who are of sin, those who cling to their sin, they love to hide in the dark places lest their ways be seen, lest their evil works be exposed, lest they be called to change. They will resist the light with everything that they have. So is that what we're seeing here? Is this that last gasp effort of the darkness to put out the light? 
This devil, the devil's final attempt to overcome the Lord of light. Is the darkness engulfing all of Judea at this moment? Is this a physical picture of the spiritual battle going on between Christ and the serpent? You remember that when Judas and the Sanhedrin came out to arrest Jesus, he did look to them. After staying the hand of his followers and telling them, do not swing the sword. We're not here to fight like this. It's not a physical battle. You remember that he looked and he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Is that what Jesus meant? That the darkness of Judah's soul the darkness of these men's desires, that it was clearly seen as the noonday sun goes black. It's certainly true that Jesus has been handed over to these men. It's certainly true that God is allowing these men to give full expression to the hatred that they had for his son. But dear friends, we know Satan isn't calling the shots here. As we said, we know that God is in complete direction and control of all that's happening. And so then we have to ask ourselves, is there ever an instance where God shows up in darkness? There are ever instance where God shows up and rather than radiant light, what we see is darkness upon the earth. And indeed, I say we do. Read through the words of the prophet over and over and over again as he talks about the terrifying day of the Lord. The day when God's judgment comes upon the earth. When the sun does go dark, the moon no longer gives its light. The stars fall from the sky. We read about it in prophet Amos, verse 8, 9 to 10. And on that day, talking of the day of the Lord, he's talking to the people of Israel, their love for sin, their lack of love and obedience towards him. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning of an only sun and to the end a bitter day. Darkness in the middle of the day. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. This is a breaking of the proper order that God has established. This is a clear signal of God's judgment. Not merely the presence of evil, a picture of God's judgment upon sin and sinners. Not the victory of sin. This is the presence of God in anger and justice. We see the same thing in the ninth chapter of the book of Exodus, or the ninth plague, plague in the book of Exodus. It's in chapter 10. Exodus 10, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hands towards the heavens, and there there, they may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. You ever felt the darkness? There will be a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hands towards heaven, and there was pitch blackness over all the land of Egypt for three days. The judgment of God had come upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians because of their sin because of his refusal to let the people of Israel go out into the wilderness, because of the hardness of their heart. God comes against them in judgment, just like the water turning to blood, just like the frogs in the cupboard, just like the boils covering their bodies. This was the judgment, the wrath of God that Israel, excuse me, that Egypt would be covered in darkness for three full days. God calls it the darkness to be felt. It's a deep and abiding gloom. I think that's what we're seeing in this morning's text, this darkness It represents the judgment of God. Do you understand? That for his children, in his pleasure, when God shows up, he shows up as a radiant light. He brings life and illumination. He cleanses and shows them the beauty of God. He blesses and he heals. But for the wicked, for the stubborn, for the unbelieving, the presence of God comes as a horrible darkness. It isn't that God has abandoned his post. It isn't that Satan has taken the reins. This is the activity of God in bringing forth his judgment. The darkness that can be felt 
a visible, visible picture, the undeniable evidence of God's judgment. But judgment upon what? Are you tired of me asking you questions yet? Judgment upon what? Perhaps in some way this is the picture of God's judgment upon apostate Israel. Certainly often God has spoken about this about what their religion has become. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, he made clear that there would be a siege laid against Jerusalem, that the temple itself would be destroyed, that not one stone would be left standing upon another, that God would tear down this entire religious system. So perhaps that's what God's giving expression to here, his judgment upon Israel. Maybe this is a clear and cosmic declaration that that old way of worship is no more. That may be it. But I think more than this, what we're looking at is that as Jesus Christ hangs upon a tree, as he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, as he takes the sin that we, the curse that we deserve upon himself, as our iniquity is laid upon him, as he begins to be counted among the transgressors, as he is looked upon and treated like a sinful and wicked man, I cannot help but believe that this is the judgment we are witnessing. You remember at times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus would refer to hell as the outer darkness be cast into outer darkness I think we're getting a glimpse of that here the punishment of God that had been promised since the garden of Eden the punishment of God that was to fall upon sin and upon sinners it all comes flooding in over the course of three hours the darkness of God's judgment is poured out without mercy upon his son this was the cup this was the cup that Jesus asked the father to remove from him this was the anticipation of this moment right here that brought Jesus to say that I am to the point of sorrow, sorrow to the point of even death. It was the anticipation of this darkness and the wrath, the judgment that it represents that caused Jesus to sweat great drops of blood. Dear friends, Jesus isn't a coward. He was not more terrified of being crucified than many martyrs that have come after him in faithful obedience. It wasn't the physical pain. It wasn't the emotional toll. It was this. Over the course of three hours, in the darkness that can be felt, the wrath of God was poured out upon his son in undiluted concentration. Now, dear friends, I've been very, very careful not to sensationalize the physical aspects of the crucifixion. I made comment to you numerous times about just how few words the gospel writers devote to it. Jesus was crucified. That's it. So I seek to match my tone. I seek to match my attention to their focus. But dear friends, I say to you with regards to this, there is simply no way to overstate what we are witnessing. While the gospel writers may not have given us many words, it was dark from noon until three. You must know that God wrote this story in the sky. We'll talk about the other signs that came in the weeks to come, God willing. And on this moment, the sun no longer gave its light. For three full hours, I have to imagine the coldness that was felt, the darkness that could be felt. You remember how Peter stayed by the fire that night because it was cold when the sun went down. I wonder if coldness hit the, hit the land at this moment. I also have to wonder, perhaps it, if, if in some way God wasn't shielding the eyes of men and saying, this is not for you to see. Jesus takes upon himself the very thing that he hates most. Everything in Jesus is repulsed by sin. We have some sense of this in our new creation, don't we? As our affections change, I pray that you do. As a born-again believer, that your relationship with sin changes. You can't waller in it like before. You can't enjoy it like you once did. 
It's almost like a foreign substance that your spirit is repulsed by. And yet it's something familiar. Because we've been there before. We still have the scars. We still have the memories. Dear friends, the memories of my sin torment me at times. So at times you indulge. You give in. You go back to those old comforts, those old friends, but this wasn't with Christ. He never knew sin. Holy and perfect and blameless and pure. Beloved, you simply have no clue, nor do I. As one pastor puts it, it's like trying to explain what being dry feels like to a fish. We've never known life apart from this. Sinless, perfect obedience. We were conceived in sin. We were brought forth in iniquity. It's our native tongue. We swam in it. We bathed in it. We drunk deeply from it. Our eyes had adjusted to the darkness and we were quite comfortable there until Jesus Christ came and illuminated our hearts. It was only then when we came to truly see our sin as it was. It was the enemy of our soul. It was an offense to our God. We couldn't treasure it anymore. We couldn't enjoy it anymore. Yeah, dear friends, you must know that Jesus Christ had never tasted any of this. He hated it. It was a stench to his nostrils. No selfishness, no ugly word, no hidden motives, no deceit, nothing but absolute love and grace and obedience and mercy, perfectly loving God, perfectly loving his neighbor. Again, I say Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not. He could not become sin or a sinner. He was completely innocent. This guilt was not his own. This sin was not his. This was our sin laid upon him. This was our guilt laid upon him like the scapegoat on the day of atonement. It's as if the hand of God came down from heaven, was placed upon the head of his son. It was as if all our hands were upon the head of his son. He took our sins upon him. In some very real way that we can't understand, our sins were transferred to him. And then as God looks upon his son and he sees that sin. Now God wasn't confused. God did not think in those moments that Jesus had sinned. I didn't think in those moments that Jesus was actually guilty. He knew that he bore our guilt. He knew that he bore our sin. And yet in some way that only he can fully comprehend, in some very real way, he looked upon his son and he saw our sin. And then in three hours of darkness, he dealt with that sin in the only way that he could. Wrath, judgment, anger, and hatred. Three full hours. You might ask, how could Jesus, how could three hours possibly satisfy the wrath of God that it takes men to pay off in all eternity because he is a perfect God. Because he is an infinite Savior. Yet for these three moments, all that hell is, all the darkness of hell, that darkness which can be felt, it was poured out, it was flooding upon, it was overwhelming Christ. Please see this. Dear friends, there's only two options for sins. The sinner will either pay for them in all eternity in hell. But the Savior has paid for them in three hours of darkness upon the cross. If those sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ on, this, on the cross, they are no longer yours. It's as if you had never sinned. They have been truly removed from you. The stain, the remembrance, the guilt, the shame, every bit of it has been taken off of you so that you are now cleansed. In exchange, you get something much more beautiful, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience imputed to you as he takes your sin upon himself. I talked to you last week about this, dear friends. What we are witnessing is a trade. 
It's an exchange. Our filth for his perfect obedience. Jesus Christ treated the way that we deserve to be treated so that we can be treated the way that he deserves to be treated. Do you understand? And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and the word for loud here is megas. You remember that death by crucifixion, it was actually by means of asphyxiation. It, It wasn't necessarily the blood loss. It wasn't some other trauma. It was oxygen deprivation. Now, man needs oxygen in order to let out a mega cry. And yet after three hours of hanging upon this cross, you remember that Jesus was too tired to carry even his own cross beam. And yet now after six hours of this torture, he musters enough strength to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. This is an Aramaic phrase. It was the language of the common men. Once the people were taken away into Israel, uh, into exile, many of them no longer were able to speak Hebrew. And so this was the language of the common men, their common tongue. Now Matthew and Mark, they both interpret, thankfully, this saying for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now church, you know that Jesus said this. There's no way the early church would make up such a thing like this. And yet you have to imagine what a shock to the system it must have been to those first disciples to hear that Jesus had said this. My God, my God. Jesus referred to God as his father. Abba. In fact, that's the way he taught us to pray, wasn't it? Our father who art in heaven. And yet what we find here in this moment of deepest darkness is the suffering comes to his absolute zenith, the peak He's not singing songs of praise. He's not calling out for help or provision. It's a cry of dereliction. Why have you forsaken me? What can this mean? I'll tell you certainly what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that the Father no longer loves the Son. Jesus said in John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. This is the very pinnacle of obedience. The high point of the glory of God. The son showing the world his justice and his wrath and extending his mercy and his grace. His love on full display. Dear friends, you must know that in the darkness of this hour, as the judgment of God fell upon his son, his love was unbroken. The cry also cannot mean that the son ceased to be God cannot mean that the trinity was somehow divided god is a triune god and god does not change it also cannot mean that somehow the divine and the human natures of jesus were separated in these moments god cannot cease to be god god changes not he does not diminish he does not increase in any way and that union between the divine and the human in this person jesus christ our lord it continues on into eternity even unto this day so we know that that's what it cannot be Yet I submit to you this morning that Jesus truly has been forsaken. The sweetness of his communion with God. He cannot feel it in this moment. And he has never experienced such a thing. There's some people that believe this why is a why of confusion. They believe that that Jesus in his humanity just couldn't take in everything that was happening to him in this moment. He couldn't comprehend everything that was happening. But I, I don't think that's what this is. I think Jesus knew exactly what was happening and why it was happening. How many times do we hear him say, this is why I'm going to Jerusalem? This is the purpose in my coming out. This is the why of unimaginable agony and sorrow. The why of encompassing pain and suffering. The why of true abandonment. 
Have you not ever cried out to the heavens? Why? I will jokingly say sometimes whenever something bad happens in my life, and I say this jokingly, why do bad things happen to good people? Because I know I ain't one. But have you not ever in a moment of suffering cried out to the heavens? Why? There was nothing that Jesus cherished more than to see the face of his father. It had never been turned away. And yet if God was to treat his son as we truly deserve, that it must be this way. God could not look with delight upon one who held the sins of men. God could not turn his ear to hear the prayers of one who was under the curse. This was the thing that the people of God should most fear. We read in Psalm 102:2, the people crying out, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So dear friends, if Jesus Christ was to truly take your punishment, then the God that is of too pure eyes to even look upon sin, he had to turn his face away. There would be no voice breaking through the darkness, crying out, reassuring Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. There would be no angel send to comfort. There would be no Holy Spirit seen in the form of a dove coming to rest upon him. For the first time ever in Jesus' life, he truly felt separation from God. This is hell. This is hell. God is there. He is there as judge and executioner instead of comforter and friend. In every imaginable way, the father has not spared his son, but has truly given him over to death. And yet, dear friends, I'll tell you what else this was not. This was not a cry of despair or doubt, for that would be sin. As Jesus truly felt the weight of his father's judgment, he knew that this would not endure forever. This quote that he gives us is from Psalm 22. It's almost as if the entire drama that's playing out here, it's almost as if God is acting out the script that he wrote back in Psalm 22. We see it with the casting of lots and with the wagging of heads and with the, with the cursing that's come upon just everything that's, that's, that's playing out. It's clear that God had gone before and written this in Psalm 22. And these words were clearly running through the mind and heart of Jesus as he suffered in this moment. So as he's quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I do not find rest. These are the words of David as he was truly in anguish. And these were the words of Christ as he was truly in anguish. And yet, dear friends, you must know that this psalm, it ends with a, with a, with a note of triumph. Jesus knew this. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by this. We turn to the end of this psalm. Psalm 22, I begin in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he was not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted. The affliction of the afflicted, excuse me. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he has cried to him. Jesus knows the way the story ends. Jesus is not doubting. Jesus is not despairing. Jesus is not believing for one moment that God has abandoned his promises to him. Jesus knows the way that this thing plays out. So this is not doubt. This is not despair. Now for one moment did he think that God would leave him there upon that cross or that he would leave him to Sheol. He knew that his body would not see corruption. And at the same time he knew that the path to exaltation it led through this. A darkness that can be felt. The judgment of God. 
the wrath of God, the sin and punishment due sinners like us upon his son. But dear friends, he never doubted that exaltation would come. So as he cries out, you hear this, not a tone of doubt, not a tone of despair. It's a tone of trust. My God, my God, you are my God. And I know that you love me, even, especially in this. And I am now ready for my exaltation, my God. We read the words of Isaiah 50:10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's what we're seeing. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now we're not entirely sure what the bystanders were doing here. The way that Matthew reads it, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. So perhaps did they mistake Eli for the name of Elijah? That, that might be it. We hear often about the prophet Elijah throughout the, throughout the Gospels. There's great expectation that he would come back, in part because God said he would come back, but also because he was a great prophet of the Lord. And because of the way he went up into heaven, he was swept up in a whirlwind into heaven. He didn't die like other men. And so oftentimes we see, they look at John the Baptist wondering if he's Elijah. Jesus wondering if he's Elijah. In addition to that, there was, there was this tradition amongst the Jewish people. They believed that Elijah would come and he would comfort people in great moments of suffering. He would comfort them in their hours of despair. So perhaps these people truly expected that Elijah would come and care for Jesus. Perhaps even taking him down off this cross. Or maybe it was just more mockery. You see, we're not told of anything they said during the darkness. I don't know that they were silent. Maybe they were just terrified. But men get real cocky once the darkness lifts, don't they? Whatever the case, we read in John's gospel that Jesus said, I thirst. So they took some of this sour wine, they put it on a sponge, they lifted it up to him, and they gave Jesus a drink. Verse 37 and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, breathed his last breath and he died. Again, I ask you to take note of the loud cry. A man on death's doorstep, oxygen deprivation, undergoing asphyxiation, he can't let out a yell like this. John tells us that Jesus cries out, it is finished. The mission was finished. His fulfillment of all righteousness was finished. His satisfaction of the Father's wrath on our behalf was finished. The whole of God's assignment to him, it is is finished Luke tells us that the Lord also shouted out quoting Psalm 31 5 Lord excuse me Father into your hands I commit my spirit the darkness is lifted and Jesus can see the Father's face again Father I've done all that you have sent me to do I've won this people 
I've satisfied your wrath. I'm ready for my exaltation. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Jesus Christ laid down his life. The onlookers were surely in shock. No man goes from crying out with a loud cry like this to breathing his last breath so quickly. John tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Beloved, this is not a normal death. Man doesn't pick the moment of his death. I understand suicide. A man can take his life in that way. But man does not simply bow his head and give up his spirit like this. Do you understand? And isn't this exactly what Jesus said? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. That's what he did. He wasn't just talking about handing himself over to evil men that would take his life. He says, I decide when I give up my spirit. The soldiers weren't going to break his leg and force him to suffocate. The spear that was thrust to his side, that was for our sake. It was of no effect. Once Jesus has completed, once our salvation is secure, once the Father is satisfied, he simply bowed his head and gave up his spirit and died. And the curtain was torn, and the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What a, what a scene. Again, I say, God willing, we'll go through these other miracles next week. I don't want to avoid them because they're hard. I don't know if you know this about me. I like to take the stuff I don't understand very well and let y'all watch me flop around on the stage trying to handle it. So we're going to talk about dead people walking into Jerusalem next week. God willing. But for this morning, we'll finish here. This curtain, the veil in the temple. You know what this was. There was a couple of curtains there that separated the holy places. There was the holy place where the priests would go and minister on behalf of the people. But then within that, there was the most holy place the holy of holies. We've, we've talked about this. It was this, this structure within the temple complex and inside this place, this is where God's presence most fully dwelt amongst his people. It was there over the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they didn't have the Ark any longer. It had been lost during the exile. And so people think that perhaps there was just a giant slab of, of rock that was meant to represent the Ark. And yet this was the place where God's presence dwelt. Man could not just walk in there willy-nilly. He couldn't come in under any terms that he saw, he saw fit. It was only the high priest, only he on the day of atonement, only he under the blood of the prescribed animals. Again, I say man cannot merely walk into the presence of God bearing his sin and live. It must be the way that God commands. God's anointed man and God's prescribed way on God's day. But even in this, they would oftentimes tie bells to the, to the garments of the high priest lest he went in there and offended God and died. As long as they heard the bells ringing, they know that the man was still alive. So the high priest, he would get on his stomach or crouch down, whatever he would do, and he would crawl under the curtain. So we see the specks of the curtain given to us in Exodus 26. And these were given directly to Moses. And, and it was a beautiful piece of, piece of artwork, really blue and purple fine linen and you know that there was cherubim that were woven into it this would be a clear picture of the gate to the east of the garden of uh, eden clear sign that man has been separated from god by his sin the man cannot come into the presence of god with his sin and live and so these cherubim that guarded the presence of god that guarded the garden the way to the tree of life that we see pictures of them even in this giant curtain this veil something like 60 feet by 30 feet this 30 feet maybe the width of a man's hand. 
I read this week that it may have taken as many as 200 men to get this thing hung up properly. We're talking about a massive piece of fabric. And the express purpose of it all was to demonstrate that because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our wickedness, and because of God's infinite and ferocious holiness, there is separation between us and him. Man simply cannot come freely into the presence of God and live. And now suddenly, it's torn in two. From top to bottom, this is the work of God. God told Moses to build it, and then God tore it under. It was the work of God. From top to bottom, he rips this thing in two. At the very moment when the temple would have been most filled with people, the Passover. At the very day, at the very hour when the Passover lambs were to be slain. In this instance, the physical barrier, right in that moment, the physical barrier between man and God. Remember the way that the temple complex was set up. There was places only the high priest could go. There was places only the priests and Levites could go. There was places only clean men could go. There was places only clean women could go. There was places that the Gentiles could go. There was always restrictions to how close men could get to God. And in an instance, the ultimate barrier between the presence of man and God is torn in two. The picture is clear, isn't it? Absolute unfettered access to God himself. Gentiles no longer restricted. Women, slave, free, Greek, Jew, Hebrew, it doesn't matter. God is now offering access to himself at the very moment of Jesus' death. Immediately, all the restrictions gone. As Jesus Christ goes in to the most holy place, we read about this in Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. He entered in on our behalf. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. No more. High priest, you're done. Thank you for your service. We've got a great and eternal high priest, and he has gone in by means of his own blood. No longer is this curtain necessary. I've torn this veil in two. Man can now approach God, but dear friends, you must not miss this. This does not mean that we can approach God on any terms we see fit. There's still great danger in approaching God while stained with sin. There's still great danger in approaching an infinitely holy God while under the curse, while under the condemnation, while under the guilt of our sin. And yet Jesus Christ has made a way. By means of his own blood, once and for all, he has offered access to all who would come, but that access is in his flesh that's what Hebrews 10 goes on to say by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh you see Jesus there, there was a silence from heaven for those three hours there was no word of comfort there was no word of assurance there was no loving assurance from the father to the son in those moments and yet God spoke loud and clear in the moments to come as he took the veil the very picture of the sacrificial system the temple system the evidence of sin that separated man from God and he tore it in two he said, this is the way. You want to come to me? You want to have access to me? You still must be cleansed. You still can't come with sin and guilt and the curse. You still must be cleansed, and my son has cleansed you. He is the way, the only way. No longer do you look to earthly priests and ask them to intercede on your behalf. My son sits at my, my right hand. He intercedes even now on your behalf. He is the way that you come to me, and now all may enter. Do you understand what we're witnessing? I'm afraid that we've lived so long on this side of the cross, we don't understand what must have overcome the Gentiles to hear this news. In 
And perhaps you sat in church too long to understand the joy that I deliver to you this morning when I tell you that your sins can be forgiven. Perhaps you take this for granted. Perhaps you think you've so mastered your sins it's not that great a debt anymore. Dear friends, I told you when we began we were standing on truly sacred ground. This is the purchase of your redemption. This is the offer of eternal life. I extend to you today the same offer I extended to you last week. I've come to learn more clearly than ever that sitting in a church like this one does not guarantee that you're a believer. Sitting in a church like this one does not guarantee that you have eternal life. Scripture calls us to examine ourselves and see if we are truly of the faith. So I plead with you this morning. Is this where you find your hope? I'm not asking you to grade your sins. I'm not asking you to judge your performance. I'm asking you if this is where you find your only hope. Is this your truest treasure? Have you given your life to pursuing this? Dear friends, if I have, I tell you to have great joy for you have truly been saved. If you have not, I tell you to have great joy because you can truly be saved. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for what we have just seen. We thank you that you did not spare your son but gave him that any who trust in him and come in repentant faith could come into your presence. Father, we desire to feel your presence now. We desire to know that your spirit is here and to feel him in a very real way as he moves among us. And more than that, we pray that you would be glorified by the words that we sing in the moments to come and the meditations of our heart. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.